Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. In this episode, we are excited to bring you a behind-the-scenes report from Secret Cinema's Blade Runner event. Our first interview is with Andrea Mocha, a producer and founder of Secret Cinema. I reached out to Andrea and I was delighted that he was willing to talk about Secret Cinema, its beginnings, and things to come. Thank you so much, Andrea, for being on the show. Um, I know you're you, a busy guy. Uh, so, you are one of the founders or the founder of Secret Cinema? No, 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 no. So, I'm the producer. You're so the I producer. Produce okay. Cinema. Yes. Secret Cinema was founded 10 years ago by Fabian Riegel, who is the creative director of, um, of the shows. And he's the chief creative officer. Uh, so, yeah. And this is our 10-year anniversary. Wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. And how did it, how did, uh, can you talk a little bit about the beginning of Secret Cinema and how that uh, happened, how did it came, come about? Absolutely. So Secret Cinema, in effect, spawned from Future Shorts, which is a um, sort of international short film festival. It's mm -hmm. an independent short film festival, which started um, with sort of the idea, how do we get audiences closer to a medium, which is short film, uh, that they might not really sort of be enticed to go see you know there's there's all these beautiful short films but actually the market for short films outside the the your mainstream festivals there's, there's not much of a market out there so the idea started uh by saying okay we've got the short film let's combine it with with art with music with poetry with performances and so future shorts started from future shorts the idea evolved into okay how do we get audiences to um to see films that they might not necessarily see nowadays. And sort of Fabian uh, then came up with the idea of Secret Cinema. And it started 10 years ago with a screening of Paranoid Park. Uh, and it was about 100 people attending. It was one night in a, an abandoned uh, skate park. And uh, sort of Fabian, yeah, started the company there and it grew to the, to the size that it is now with shows that uh, have an attendance of over 100,000 audiences. Wow. So what was the, what was one of the first you know, I, from what I know about Blade Runner, we've spoken to people who have gone to different people who have experienced Secret Cinema's mm -hmm. version of Blade Runner. But uh, in terms of the setup, like when did you guys start first getting into larger experiences that were longer than the original ones? Um, they sort of started, I guess, our turning point really was our productions of Back to the Future and uh, Star Wars. Uh, those were really the sort of two productions which we, we, from which we went uh, from a sort of underground, not very well-known, sort of very left-wing organization to this, these uh, very big spectacular shows. And obviously, Star Wars, like Blade Runner, we had to create um, sort of a very futuristic, very extensive, very elaborate set. Because uh, obviously the fandom around both Star Wars and Blade Runner is so... Um, you know the fans of these films are so passionate and they really look at the details so if, if we were to trip on one of the details or anything like that we'd be called out uh, and back to the future likewise was our biggest outdoor event uh, we had 80,000 people attend to that three DeLoreans running around wow. and again it's one of those films that that's got such a feeling of um, you know everyone everyone's watched back to the future as a kid and it's got such a such an importance in people's hearts that we really need to be sort of very very um, attentive and careful to with with those productions, um, but yeah, I guess I guess those were really the turning point for us. In terms of uh, s planning this, do you guys have to get 
uh, license from the studios to throw these things. Yes, absolutely. We we have a great relationship with studios, and um, and obviously we need to get approval from them for for a lot of what we do. Actually, um, you know, these are big IPs. They're big properties. They're as I said, there's there's a huge um, amount of people who love these films. So we they want to make sure that we do things properly. You know. Do you like our owl? It's artificial. Of course it is. Must be expensive. Very. Who had this idea, or is it something? Maybe do it. Does a studio approach you? But in terms of like throwing secret cinema for Blade Runner, which you know I've seen a lot of the photos. It's pretty amazing. Um, what you guys have done, the visuals, the 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 texture. I mean, it all looks really like scenes from the film. I mean, it's amazing. Um, and and a couple of people that we've spoken to, they were like. They said to us, they're like, this is the most incredible experience of my life. Um, and that's that's a pretty amazing thing to say about, you know, you, you and I know that, you know, you have Disney World, you have all of these things that you can go to and kind of participate in these worlds. Um, but for someone to say that about uh, an experience is pretty profound. So I'm curious, how do you start planning that? How did, how, how did you begin to plan something like Blade Runner? So our, our shows always have a social or sort of um, a, a social message at the bottom of it. And uh, obviously, as I said, it's our 10 year anniversary. So Fabian wanted to bring back one of the productions that we had already done. And Blade Runner, we had already staged in, I think, 2013. Uh, and it was a much smaller production, three day event. Uh, but it was one of those productions that remained in a lot of people's uh, memories and hearts. And so we wanted to bring it back bigger and better to show really the growth that Secret Cinema has had over the past few years. Um, but also it had this sort of, you know, Blade Runner, we, we first of all, there was the, me the message of ecology and the sort of the fact that, we, you know, Blade Runner is set in a world which is deprived of all the natural resources, which is obviously something that we really wanted to bring focus on um, now but also um, the, the whole issue of data and uh, sort of how humans have become data nowadays. And we wanted to sort of, you know, our experiences are very analog. Our experiences are very, uh, they're, they're full of human, the humans at the center. So we wanted to really highlight this, this, this trend, I guess, that we're seeing now, is sort of the human individual being reduced to data and web traffic and, and that sort of thing. So th those were the reasons we we came we we wanted to put it on, and you know Fabian did a great deal of work in in um, securing the rights because it's obviously not easy, you know, especially with the new film coming out. Um, it was in, it, and so thankfully we we managed to get the rights and we started the planning process. I think probably a year before the show actually opened. And what's involved in that? Like, do you do you got so you are you hiring? a lot of the people that they would hire for a film in terms of having to create sets and costumes. How does that work? It's, it's a real combination of different skills and different artistries. Um, some people come from a film background. Some people come from an events background. Some people come from a theater background. The beauty of Secret Cinema is that it fuses these three, these three things. It's not really an event. It's not really a theater performance. It's not really a, a film. It's, it's really the three combined. So you need people who are talented and experienced from, from all of the sectors of, of the sort of entertainment industry. With this one, the sound was particularly 
um, something that we really wanted to get right. Obviously, the soundtrack is such an amazing and, and big part of the film that we really wanted to do it justice. So uh, the team at Autograph, uh, Luke Swaffield and Emma O'Donnell uh, really worked on the sound element to make sure that it was it was great. And Fabian's notes will always make it louder, make it louder, make it real. We With this one, it's all about creating a real uh, living town. Um, so that was a really important aspect of it. Obviously, the lighting uh, done by Terry Kirk, I would have bastard the set design by Tim McQuillan Wright. All of these elements had to come together. So it's it's quite a tricky process, but I think the result is um, was quite spectacular. In terms of like characters, just from what people said that you know. Of course, there's a lot going on in the experience itself. And they're like, yeah, we think we saw Rachel and Deckard, but do you guys hire people to uh, to be made up to look so these people are making, these characters in these films that we love are making appearances? Um, or are you really kind of quiet about that? You don't really want to talk about it. Like, how does that happen? No, we we absolutely have the characters from the film milling about. Obviously, people want to come to the film. We don't replicate the story of the film. We always sort of expand the world so uh when you'll come to secret cinema blade runner you wouldn't follow the story of deckard in the original blade runner but you'd follow narrative which we've created with our creatives and creative directors but the key characters obviously have to make part of it and so with this one we created this sort of blackout narrative where we were a group of um uh, scavengers and replicants had taken over uh downtown la and staged a blackout by uh disconnecting a plug um, and again, it goes back to the idea of, sort of disconnecting from screens, disconnecting from uh, from the Matrix and, and going back to the analog experience. But yes, it's really important that we have those key characters and both our casting and makeup team are absolutely fantastic in making sure that they looked just the part and the costume team as well. That's great. Uh, once you have things planned and in place, do you yourself try this experience out to see how it is? How do you guys test this type of thing? It's, it's really interesting because um, our shows really come together once the audience walk in. You know, they're interactive, they're participatory show. We expect everyone to take part. So until we open the doors and we've got the first preview for express rehearsal, which are open to the audience, uh, we don't know whether certain things will work or not. Um, so we have uh, a number of previews and uh, and that's re really where we get to play and test um, and test our world. Obviously, we've got, you know, it's our I think it's our 45th production. So we've got... Um, the experience on our shoulders to make sure you know we know what works and what won't work but there's always interesting things that happen so for example on again going back to back to the future we had this we wanted to um, orchestrate this scene where marty mcfly would walk through the town square and what happened on the first preview is that the whole audience just started following marty mcfly and <laughs> it was like a big snake behind marty mcfly so suddenly we had to um swap that around and change it there's always there's always um, yeah, I think the previews are really the, the most important part of our planning process. Yeah, I mean, you're really essentially throwing on, you're throwing a play, but it's not a play, but it, it's interactive, but it isn't. It's very, very fascinating. Um, mm. Do you, obviously 2019 is coming up, which is the banner year for Blade Runner. It's kind of when yep. everything begins. Are you, or the, is Secret Cinema thinking about bringing um, this experience to the U.S.? Ah, uh, that's top secret, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine you wouldn't. I, I, mean, I guess you'll have to find out. Yeah, I mean, I live in the Los Angeles area, and I'm thinking, man, this is just the best time. Um, it's, you know. 
we certainly have plans to sort of come overseas and visit you guys in LA with what production is absolutely top secret. Though, Got I it. To. <laughs> I totally understand. I totally understand. Do you have a favorite uh, of the productions that you've you've been a part of? different for different reasons uh definitely the one that's sort of closest uh to my heart still is uh, moulin rouge um it was just such a such a crazy and bohemian and wonderful sexy world that it was really uh, quite special to work in it especially because the crew and cast sort of became like the people who would work at the moulin rouge in 1900 paris mm-hmm. and it sort of became this bohemian whirlwind um so yeah i think moulin rouge is still uh, still my favorite wow and um do you in terms of blade runner was it were they films uh, certainly of course there's a new one which i loved and i yeah. thought it was a masterpiece which is crazy that they were able to make a film that great um yeah. were you a fan of the films before you guys uh or the film before you guys started a hundred percent there's there's so much work that goes into these productions that really if you don't feel passionate about them you you know, you, you wouldn't put uh, the hours in. Um, at Secret Cinema, we're all cinephiles in the end. We all love film. And so Blade Runner, you know, it's an iconic film. It changed science, fic- science fiction forever. So um, absolutely. I mean, we were all massive fans. It was really interesting to be able to do the research and, uh, and look into the background and, you know, watch it a hundred times, really pick out the details. We became even bigger fans than what we already were. And... Did the studio, like Alcon or even Warner Brothers, did they give you access to more details? It, it's a very collaborative process. I, they absolutely, you know, we could tap into tap into their um, experts and, and ask questions, and it was it was a great relationship with both of them. And of course, as you guys were planning this, did you know? Were you clued? I mean, I guess that they they had announced. 2049 um releasing when you started to plan blade runner did, was it, I, I don't, i'm not sure if there was an announcement made at that point if it was a year before but was this on purpose that you're doing these um you're doing this show like kind of in the year of release of 2049 i half and half half, half it was a beautiful coincidence half of it was like okay there's also a new film coming out you know the the, the reason is always as i said that the social message at the bottom of it uh, that's where we do everything. Um, but obviously, when when there's things like that that help, you know, they always help. Absolutely. Uh, here's a random question. But last year at mm-hmm. San Diego Comic Con, I was going to go, but I didn't. I didn't end up going. They had a Blade Runner experience. Did you guys mm-hmm. have anything to do with that? No, that no. wasn't us. Okay. I've never actually been to the San Diego Comic Con. I've, I've been to the one in London a few times, but I can imagine the San Diego one. Oh my God! I was just there. It was crazy. It was crazy. <laughs> Like I couldn't even like they have they have these like the exhibition hall that you walk down. I couldn't even move. That's how many people there were. I couldn't move wow. left or right. It was nuts. Um, wow. But I mean, I went there to meet up with some friends, and it ended up being pretty fun in the end. But uh, yeah, I just remember the one before last this year. Um, they had huge, huge building that they devoted to recreating essentially the food court scene in twenty forty nine. Um, and I thought, well, this is very interesting. You know, it kind of coincided with a little bit with what you guys were doing. Um, here's just sort of another random question. What happens to your costumes and sets when you're done with the production? And do you guys, the, what I hear a rumor is, is that once you guys are done with the production, that's it. You're not ever going to do it again. Well, as I said, Blade Runner was a remount. So Blade Runner was the second time we staged it. Dirty Dancing, likewise. I, yes, yes. 
we've done a couple of times. It's not exactly true that once we're, once we're done with the production, we never touch it again. There's um, there's obviously loads of films out there that we're excited to work on, so the, we always want something new. But occasionally we'll bring back the, the hits. In terms of the costumes and the, and the sets, we're the worst kind of hoarders. So we, <laughs> we tend to put everything in storage and keep it. And, you know, there's, there's films in which we'll reuse bits and... You know, for example, Star Wars and, and Blade Runner, there were some bits that we could obviously reuse uh, that, that were quite generic. The costumes, likewise, uh, you know, the, the certain not, you know, we couldn't reuse Hannibal Chu's jacket anywhere because that's too, of an icon, too iconic a piece. But, you know, the more generic scavenger looks and that sort of stuff we'll reuse. Mm -hmm. We're quite, um, we're quite eco-friendly. We, uh, we tend to make use of everything as much as possible uh, when we can. And in terms of funding... Does is, does Secret Cinema pay for itself in terms of ticket sales, or how do you guys raise money to throw something like this? Yes, yeah, ticket sales. We've got a great fan fan base. So, uh, and I hear most of the time these sell out all the time. Like, I, I just as I've been tracking you guys, like I and I go and you see like sold out, you can't go in. Sold out, you can't go in. And I've seen that several times, which is really exciting because it makes it even more like, man, we got to go to this thing that you can't go to. We've got the best um, audience in the world. They put a tremendous amount of effort into absolutely everything. You know, we demand we demand quite a lot from them. They have to bring uh, uh, different items. They need to be in costume. They need to be in character. They need to uh, sort of fill out the, and go through the website experience. And uh, I think that makes the experience quite special for them. They feel ownership of the experience, which is great. And so people keep on coming back. Um, for two reasons. First of all, for the experience and the, the magical worlds that we create, but also because they're fans of the film. Um, and so we've got, you know, the, it, yeah, quite often we, we do sell out and it's great. Um, and and that's, that's why these productions are getting bigger and longer is that we want more of our, as many audiences as possible to, to come and witness these. For sure. Is there any, just any film out there, whether it's old or new, or that you'd think, oh, we'd love to do this? Oh, there's so many. Um, my, you know, some of my, I would love to create something around um, Gladiator. I'm from Rome. I'm oh, a Roman. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So to be able to bring that sort of world to life would be fantastic for me. You know, the, the films that work well at Secret Cinemas are the films that have a world around them. Yeah. Um, the Dark Crystal would be awesome. Yeah, it would actually. <laughs> That'd be expensive, uh, you know, though. Jeez. Uh, I'm I'm awful. Uh, I'm an awful guest to invite at dinner parties because once uh, people find out what what I do, they tend to just uh, what about on, this? Uh, what about that? Yeah, what, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, again, as someone who is uh, a nerd, and you know, I run two podcasts: one for Alien, which <laughs> will also be a great experience, or one for Blade Runner. It's always the possibility. What I love about film, what I love about the experience of film, is that it opens your mind up to kind of exploring your imagination and you guys are making that real which is i think yeah. a really no one can say that they're doing what you're doing um you can go maybe you can go to uh the harry potter's wizarding world and that's kind of cool but it's not really i mean it's somewhat immersive but it's not immersive and you guys are taking it a step further so it's a really wonderful and special thing that you guys are doing for sure thank you i mean uh, as, I, as i said that we you know, we're the biggest film fan, fans, first of all. So we, we we really want these experiences to feel real. And it's so important because the moment you break the narrative, you, the moment you break the, the magic for someone, the whole experiences can, can really crumble. 
Uh, and that's why we take phones away from people. You know, we don't want them to be on the screens. We want them to be lost in this world and uh, and uh, be able to explore and have fun and um, find something unusual. Fantastic. Well, I really want to thank you for taking the time to come on. I know you're busy. Thank uh, you. Uh, it, it was just important for us that we talk to either a producer or a founder of the show. And just because there's so many people raving about it, especially people who are fans of our podcast because we're the only Blade Runner podcast. And we've spoken there to people go. who who were involved in 2049, who made 2019. Um, so we just think it's a really great time to be a fan. So thank you so much. Thank you. In this next interview, I sit down with Simao Vaz, a participant in Secret Cinema's Blade Runner event held in the UK. I have a guest named Simao, and you live in England, correct? I do, yeah. Okay. And so what really happened is we've known about Secret Cinema as a podcast, as people who participate in this podcast. Um, we haven't known too much about it. We posted it um, before, and then yesterday I reposted a link um, about kind of exploring a little bit more about the worlds that the people behind Secret Cinema created, and Simao replied saying it was an incredible experience so thank you for coming on the show and i would love to kind of have you walk us through what that was like and how you were able to get tickets and that whole process okay um well first of all thank you for having me absolutely uh, listen since uh, pretty much day one so this is a uh, quite cool um right so i so i heard about um secret cinema for a while now because obviously i've been in England, and I've worked a bit in um, in the industry, so I I've heard of Secret Cinema and what they did um, for about two years uh, when they did I think the Moulin Rouge one. So I think that was twenty sixteen or seventeen, but I I didn't go to it. Um, but then when they did the Blade the Blade Runner one, I was like, yeah, I I, I need to go to this. Um, yeah. And this was the second time they did it. They, the second time they did Blade Runner, I believe. Uh, they are 10 years old, so this was the big celebration of 10 years. But yeah, so I got tickets through uh, a friend of mine. So she got me. She asked, "Do you want to go?" I said yes. So then, from the moment you sort of get your ticket, that's when the experience starts, in a way. So um, you, so I got, uh, I got the email. And I had to do this thing, which was uh, registering for Utopia, which was the big uh, organization that they had. Uh, so the email is very, um, very well designed. And it says uh, it's a member of the Tyrell Corporation, leading humanity to new worlds, new beginnings. And their tagline was the chance to begin again, which obviously is something that is in the uh, in 2019, when Deckard is just looking up and you hear the chance to begin again. Uh, and yeah, and so you had so you had different price tickets, and those I believe those different price tickets give you access to different characters in a way because there's a lot of role playing, there's a lot of uh, engaging with other people. So you kind of you know for someone who enjoys role playing or role playing or acting, that's that's pretty awesome because you essentially get to be in the universe of whatever film they're doing. Um, so I, from what I remember, they had scavengers, entertainers, 
members of the LAPD and targeting investigators. They might have other ones that I couldn't remember. I was I was trying to go back today and see the different things that they had, but their shop's already closed, so I couldn't see uh, the different things. Yeah, they have a shop you can buy like costume from them, and yeah, you, you know, just get ready to to embody the character that you're going to play. Now, do they require everyone to uh, wear some type of costume to be kind of appropriate? Uh, it's it's not it's not uh, it's not you don't have to but you're highly encouraged to and you know we uh, we I did notice some people when I when I went I noticed some people that weren't in costume were just in normal clothing and it does feel a bit off yeah <laughs> in yeah. a way um, but yeah but no you don't have to you're just highly encouraged to because it's just really cool really um yeah so the things that so. My my character, the person I was, was Norman W. Cardinal Fourth. I was a scavenger, and my job title was a dreamer. And so I had that, which was replicant or so human. I, uh, well, I don't think anyone was a replicant in the sense that I don't think anyone the bought it. So none of the audience was replicants. There were definitely replicants there. Got it. Uh, uh, but yeah. But we, we were all, I believe we were all human or not, or we just didn't know we were replicants. Um, because the other thing that they asked, they asked to bring. So they then they have a list of things that you can possibly bring. So they had uh, umbrellas or raincoats, goggles, recycling goods, as in bottle tops, unwanted warm clothes and sanitary products for the onless, drums, photo currency. American poetry for readings, flight posters, battery-powered string of lights. This was sort of the list um, of stuff for you to bring in if you wanted. Um, and I ended up bringing, so I, my costume was, I had a, a T-shirt and trousers and boots. Then I had my sort of steampunk slash, slash cyberpunk goggles, a raincoat, a bandana over my uh, mouth, fingerless uh, leather gloves and memory, so photos of my actual, so actual photos that I had. I just printed them, and yeah, we just had loads of, and that was a currency. That was the currency you used within the experience to get certain things. Obviously, you spend money there because there's loads of other things going on. But yeah, wow, that's yeah, so this, fascinating. Yeah, it was really cool. So this is all the three-day stuff. This is just as you as you get your ticket. You go to this website, especially like it was Utopia Live, I believe, and and you get loads of notifications of stuff happening, and you get videos of like, oh, begin again, and you know, pollution on Earth is over, over the, over like it's really over polluted, and uh, yeah, loads of loads of different things, stuff talking about nexus, and yeah, it was it was fascinating. Just that anticipation to go, that was really cool. I had a month of building up of watching Blade Runner about three times in that, in that <laughs> yeah. period. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, because that was a big thing. I was, I was, obviously, I'm going to talk about the sector, but you've got the experience. So you've got the interactive theater type thing. And then you watch the film at the end. But to anyone that is going to, or is considering, or is going to do a, a secret cinema, I highly advise to watch the film beforehand and then go because, you're going to be watching it twice, but it's, you just enjoy it a bit more. Um, 
yeah, interacting with characters within that within the universe. But yeah, so onto the proper day. So I went. So you you don't know where it is until you know you get the email confirming the place, and then you plan and you go. Um, so I went by tube or underground, and I got to I got to the station, and immediately because you're in costume, immediately you see people there, and there's loads of people. There was already a guy, so an actor as an LAPD officer guiding us, but because we were scavengers, they were kind of quite they were quite forceful, let's say. As to to say like oh you go there you go there and yeah so that was that was interesting that sort of oppression that is that exists in that you get a feeling from when you're watching both films really yeah yeah so that that oppression starts starts right as you get out of the get out of the station which is really it's really interesting from the moment you walk into that side it's it's like you're you're in the different you're in the different place so i wasn't in london anymore i was kind of in, in a bit already in la 2019 i say this never having been to actual la but you know you just get the feeling that you are already in that universe yeah so you get searched you get searched by the guys so that they make sure you don't have uh, you know drinks or food that you take in um and then I put, they have a couple of, they have lockers so you can put your bags there so i put my bags and from there that's when that's when the experience starts so after this we 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 go in lines and we had um I th uh, so we had two blade runners uh checking identity papers uh, this is another thing you get identity papers that you have to print and bring and um, so that would be that would be the one saying my name so my character's name so norman uh, scavenger dreamer uh, all of that and um the, de the dates of birth were withheld, so you, you didn't know. No one really knew. Like, you would look at your identity papers, and they didn't have your date of birth, which I thought was really interesting as well. Um, and then, yeah, so, but at this point, so this is when, this is where I'm going to start talking from a personal point of view, because this, this now starts to get very different, and you get different storylines, you get different things that you can do. So what happened to me was, I go online, I go, I got in, in, in the line and the Blade Runner that was in front of me to check the papers, she took the papers out of me and she asked my name. And I remembered my name. I was like, oh yeah, Norman Cardinal. And uh, she was like, are you the first one in the family? And then I couldn't for the life of me remember that I had a fourth. And I just, I just froze because I was just already overwhelmed by this feeling of, I, I didn't really know what was happening because this was my first Secret, uh, secret cinema experience as well so I didn't really know what to expect um, and she <laughs> and she had a very interesting comment which was looks like someone forged their identity papers and then she sent me to this sort of cage where other other um, scavengers were and then there were a couple of so a couple of, of the actors there as scavengers they were like rattling the cages and then all of a sudden this this actor opens the cage and we all just charge at the uh, building because we wanted to get in and they didn't want us to get to, to get in basically um, so we charge in uh, we go out of the back we go in the back we get in and so this is where we started so we get into this warehouse and um, the warehouse is all it's all neon it's all very 
very respectful to the film. Um, all the, you know, LEDs and all the little, um, what do you call them? Um, noodle shops and all of that. So we get in and this group, we get this, this uh, scavenger guy coming to us and saying, uh, our mission here is to, um, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna do the blackout. Which I thought was very interesting because in my in my brain I was like, hang on, <laughs> blackout is not meant to happen for another three years, yeah. <laughs> technically. But <laughs> but I was like, yeah, okay, I'll go along with it. Um, so yeah, so this was the big mission for the scavengers was to um, interact with uh, everyone apart from the LAPD and um, and start getting information about how to put blackout in place. So blackout to them, to the scavengers was supposed to be, um, I've got this in my notes somewhere. Um, yeah, so it's the operation to take down all data, all data, uh, granting everyone the chance to begin again, which was again a play on, a play on the tagline, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting because you know, there's a lot of conversation about how 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 to make cinema a good thing again and being, doing cinema a, a thing that people want to go see and. You know, you, you look at stuff like Secret Cinema and you're like, this is the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is one of the ways. You yeah. know, people get engaged and get more than just, you know, now you can watch a film, you want millions of platforms to watch a film, but if you offer them something else, an opportunity to, you know, to be involved in, in it, then they'll go and see it. Uh, and they're doing another one right now. I think they started today, uh, the, the next one they're doing. So, you know, we're keeping on strong, and I think it's a very, very interesting idea. And it works so well for Blade Runner. It worked so well. I was kind of, I was a bit afraid when I went in, but then the moment I got into that huge terminus, it was called the Terminus Center, it was just amazing. Absolutely. Wow. Well, Simon, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak oh, to us, uh, for listening to the show. Um, this is really great. Sure. Okay. Thank you so much. Absolutely. All right. I'll talk to you later. In this final interview, host Dan Ferlito talks with Secret Cinema attendee Carlos Nunez about his incredible experiences attending the exclusive Blade Runner event. Sure. So my name is Carlos Nunez and I'm a physician. I live in, uh, in San Diego in Southern California. I've uh, lived here about seven years now. I, I moved out here for work um, and I don't see patients anymore. I'm actually part of the medical technology industry. I'm the chief medical officer of a company called ResMed, which in our space, in the med tech space, it's um, actually a very well-known company. We have the, uh, the unique distinction of having more cloud-connected medical devices in people's homes than any company in the world. And we make devices and software and connectivity that help people who have respiratory diseases manage them at home. So people, anything from sleep apnea to COPD and neuromuscular diseases where people need help breathing, but they don't need, need to be in the hospital, make those sorts of devices. And then we make a software that connects it all together and allows to, us to create a, a full sort of digital health connected health platform. So it's funny, as I was thinking about this question, I figured you would probably ask what I do. I realized that it's probably one of the industries that could very well be involved if we ever get to the point of creating something like a replicant, the medical technology, connected health. You know, our devices are basically little robots that sit in your house and help you breathe. And 
eventually we're going to see as you know ai and ml continue to proliferate through the medical industry somebody someone in biotech medtech somewhere is going to come up with the precursor to the first replicant eventually um yeah let's uh let's talk a little bit about blade runner maybe uh you know we usually start this with guests i'd like to know a little bit about um well you must have been alive when it came out <laughs> did, i was did you yes. go to the theaters and see it i did not so when it came out in uh uh, in the 80s, I was a teenager, and I was already uh, a, a pretty big sci-fi fan uh, and had seen, you know, Star Wars came out in 1977. I was probably still in middle school. Yeah, I was in middle school at the time. So, you know, Star Wars kicked off uh, a really interesting era in sci-fi and in the movie theater because we had a lot of movies that tried to kind of replicate that formula. But Blade Runner was very different. Um, and when I was, uh, at the time when it came out, I wasn't quite sure that it was a movie that would interest me because I didn't know what to make of it. Um, but it was several years after the release that I actually came across the movie for the first time. My younger brother, who's also, he's a huge sci-fi fan. He's actually a much more devoted fan than I am of the genre that he likes. He's um, he's actually a member of the 501st. Do you know what that is? Those are the people that dress like stormtroopers and stuff, like for real and oh, go to hospitals. And do, do a lot of cosplay and stuff. and stuff. Okay. Yeah. So he's got like a made by the guy who created the stormtrooper costumes for George Lucas. He has a, an actual stormtrooper costume from that wow, guy. That's yeah, intense. He's, he's hardcore. <laughs> and so he bought back in the late 80s a laser disc player. And you, I don't know if you ever saw or remember those, the big like LP have seen size. Them. Yeah. And he bought the laser disc for Blade Runner, which was the theatrical release with the voiceover and everything. And he said, you should watch this movie. I think you'd like it. And so I watched it and something resonated with me. So I was, you know, late teens at this point, I was probably 17 or so. And early, though, early nineties, you think, or when was this? Probably late 80s, early 90s, okay. so maybe 88, 89 right. time frame. Uh, something just resonated with me. It's, it's a common story for the Blade Runner fans. You watch the movie and you realize the, the, the visuals, the, that sort of cyberpunk dystopian wrapper around the story is extremely compelling, but the story just resonates with you. It's, that's the most compelling part of it. But I think that delivery vehicle, and I, I, you've probably talked about it on the podcast in this way where that the visuals, the music, the effects, it's just the vehicle to deliver this very, very, you know, almost timeless tale of the human condition, um, is what made it even more so compelling because it was very different as dystopian as parts of like the star Wars universe or other, parts of sci-fi have been, this was the first time that it was completely dystopian. You know, you even thinking back to like 2001 Space Odyssey, everything's shiny and new and pretty and futuristic. And, uh, you know, the whole Star Trek, Starfleet Academy, you know, the earth is perfect and pollution's been, you know, figured out and everybody's happy and there's everyone's got <laughs> enough to eat. This was the exact opposite. And, um, even before I realized there were these loose connections between the alien and the Blade Runner universe, the first thing that came to my mind was this reminds me of alien. It's dark. It's industrial. It's like, you know, big corporations kind of run amok. And, uh, uh that's how it all happened. And it was just kind of all downhill from there, you know, waiting patiently for the director's cut and the final cut. And, 
Uh, and then when I heard about Secret Cinema, it was a no-brainer. Let's move into how you first heard about uh, Secret Cinema and kind of your thought process into, you know, just hearing about it to when you decided, like, okay, I'm going to this thing. Sure. So my uh, my very good friend, my best friend, uh, he lives back on the East Coast. We used to live in the same town, and we bonded, literally bonded over Blade Runner. My wife and his wife were buddies. They asked us to go on, you know, oh, we're going to go out with this, you know, this other couple. So I meet this guy for the first time, and we kind of get along, and we like the same sorts of things. And literally later that night, after you know, we went out to dinner, we, we all got along as two couples. They said, oh, let's come back to our house, have a drink. We get to our house, we start talking. I look at like the books on his shelf, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and things like that. And I'm like, you know, we really do have a lot in common. He goes, this will be the test. And I swear, this is exactly how it happened. He disappears. He comes back in the room with something behind his back. And he says, what's your favorite movie of all time? And I said, just so you know, I'm not cheating. I'll ask my wife to answer. My wife's like, oh, he loves that movie Blade Runner. And he pulls out from behind his back the laser disc, the same <laughs> one my brother had, of Blade Runner. And I'm like, oh, my God. That's great. Yeah. So we became best friends. And he actually, we, we still, we talk almost daily. And he um, saw a clip on the news, you know, on his phone of Secret Cinema, Blade Runner. He must have had an alert for Blade Runner. And... Uh, he just sent me the link and I, I read through it and I texted him back and said, we need to go. So literally the decision for me to decide I wanted to go took about a nanosecond. I, you know, I read through it. I said, I don't know exactly what this is. I've never heard of secret cinema, but if what they're describing is even halfway true, we're going. And it was an easy sell for him. He went, he went to, because he, uh, he loves London. He actually studied in London for, for some time and it's his favorite city in the world. So I said, look, you get to go to London. We both get to go to this Blade Runner thing. It's a win-win. And so we planned it out and we did it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be sold, certainly. <laughs> and I have not I have not been to London yet, but yeah, I mean, I know all about it. It's It sounds like a gorgeous city. Um, okay, I, I didn't realize that you went with a friend. Uh, did you guys, and we'll get into the details, but did you guys stick together throughout the experience or did you have sort of separate experiences that you then reconnected with uh, about later? Yeah, so... And when I tell you a little about the details, there are there seem to be three different tracks, which I'm sure the founder can verify. Since we both bought the same type of ticket, we had a similar track, a similar experience. Okay. There was one time where we got separated, not by choice, but literally because the crowd kind of overwhelmed the scene. And we got like you would have gotten separated from a loved one if there was like a riot. It was crazy. Um, but yeah, we um, we. We heard about it in January. The tickets went on sale, I believe, sometime in February. And I set my alarm for the day the tickets went on sale. And actually, the first day, they crashed the servers. Wow. There was so much demand. So they had to stop pre-sales. And I think it was either 24 or 48 hours later, they cranked it back up again. So I had to get up again. It was like 3 a.m. my time. Had him on one line, had the website up on the other. And our calendar's open, and I'm like, okay, let's find the dates that will work for us, and then we'll see if the tickets are available. And within a few minutes, we had found a date that works, and we bought the tickets. There were three tiers, sort of the standard ticket, which I think was about 50 or 60 bucks uh, when you translate from pounds. 
there was sort of an enhanced experience that was a little over $100. And then for about 200 bucks, if I'm if memory serves, there was sort of the, I think they called it like a VIP experience. We figured if we're flying all this way and no we'll just buy, yeah, we'll buy the top tier tickets. Right. Uh, it included drink coupons and a meal coupon. So, you know, it wasn't like you were getting nothing for that. But it turns out the tier became very important because it dictated the experience, as I alluded to, and we can get into that later. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I certainly would have made the same call. Bless those prices and differences aren't that bad. A lot of stuff happens before you ever get there, which is the most uh, one of the most interesting aspects of Secret Cinema. Yeah, tell us about that. So we bought the tickets in February for a date in May. But almost immediately afterwards, like in a week or two, they emailed each of us, you know, thank you for registering for uh, uh, your off-world experience with Utopia. Okay. Um, so they had created sort of a fake company called Utopia, which was the leading, they positioned as the leading provider of off-world transport. And they said, you're going to be meeting us at World Terminus, which is, I guess, the place where the off-world transports go from earth or one of the places where they go from earth to the off-world colonies and here is all of the details of you know your identity your persona and the items that you should bring so you go to this website that they created called live utopia i think it was liveutopia.com might still be up who knows and you logged in with credentials they sent you and it takes you to this profile and so i had a profile my name was christopher mcgee I was, or I am, uh, an undercover LAPD detective. My normal job as an undercover detective, I mean, it got very specific, was to combat uh, corporate fraud, but I was also crooked. I was a dirty cop. I had a, a side hustle where I was running an illegal gambling operation. Wow. So they added that level of color. And then they had a list of items that you should bring, and then a link to their store, um, where you could buy like clothing and, and accessories, but you didn't have to. They said, you know, this is just a suggestion of what you should dress or how you should, what you should wear or how you should dress when you come based on your role and your persona. So um, didn't uh, actually, because the store was based in London, it was just easier for me to look at the pictures, get ideas and buy stuff here. So I spent the next couple of months assembling a costume based on what they asked me to, uh, to wear and the props and the devices and gadgets and doodads that they asked me to bring. It was quite interesting. It was a, an eclectic list. I I meant to ask you that. So this is post 2049 that you went to this. No, it's in between 2019 and 2049. So the blackout? Oh, no, sorry. I didn't mean in the world. I meant, uh, when did you actually go in real we life? Went this past May. So, yes, it was post-2049. Gotcha. Because I was stayed. curious about that in terms of, you know, props and characters, whether the movie had come out. Okay, cool. But yeah. you were I think you were going to tell me what year it takes place uh, in the universe. So, yeah, go so ahead. So, sometime between 2019 and 2049, because the blackout is actually a big part of the story. You don't know that till you get there. But the blackout that obviously is alluded to in 2049... Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, what a different experience because whether they got, you know, Alcon to participate or not, the movie's public and out so they could use information from 2049. Had this come out earlier, all of that would have been a big secret. So they wouldn't have yeah. had any of that. So that makes sense the the way they timed it. 
Yeah, no, it was really cool. And so my friend saw my currency and he's like, oh, you need to make me some. So I made some endangered species for him. Of course, I had to do an owl. And I did a Bengal tiger, and then I did something else for him. Uh, where did I do? Oh yeah, of course, uh, duh, the unicorn. Right. Yeah, we'll put we'll put all those up in the show notes that people will be interested to see those. And uh, and then I printed a bunch of the unicorn ones just to hand out for anybody. So we used some as bribes to get around and to get into places. And then I just handed these out for fun. And then the QR code actually takes you to an insta a fake. Instagram account that I created that just has a few Blade Runner pictures posted there. That's awesome. Cyberpunk stuff. I, like I said, I went nuts. Well, but that's great. I mean, I, I'm sure Secret Cinema appreciates it because you know he multiplied times however many hundreds of people were there. If everybody's as involved, you're it just really enriches the experience, you know. And um, yeah, that's that's amazing. Well, I, I yeah, good job. I imagine you were <laughs> they were uh, pretty happy with your performance as a fan. They probably were. I got. I actually think I got a special assignment, which we can talk about, from Deckard himself. Oh wow! Uh, because he saw that. Oh my God, this guy's like a little too into it. <laughs> so right. they said, "We need you to do something else," and they kind of gave me my own little separate mission, which was really cool. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me. Tell me more about going into it and kind of how how it how it started and how it progressed in terms of your experience. So yeah, right before the day. So I said we were in May. Um, couple of weeks before we got an email saying this is your location to meet and time and who your contact is and so we were to meet at uh, 6 or 6 30 at um, an underground station one of the london subway stations and we our contact was captain brian of all people so we get on our garb we must have looked ridiculous but it's london <laughs> so you know i'm sure there's plenty of people walking around you know dressed a little different or interesting. It was actually the weekend of the Meghan Markle Royal wedding, which was interesting. Oh, we wow. didn't plan it on purpose, but, uh, it was a busy time in London. Anyway, there was so many people there for the wedding and just, you know, stuff going on everywhere. So we're on the subways in our garb. I actually bought a blaster, a, K, a blast. This is K's blaster. I don't think I need to be walking the streets of London with a fake gun under my trench coat. So I actually left it behind. Probably. Uh, a it's good cool. Call. I still have the prop, but yeah, so we, we get on the subway, we get to the station, we get out of the subway, and you see a couple dozen people milling around that are obviously dressed for Blade Runner. And the style of dress was um, most of the guys were dressed kind of like we were, trench coats, fedoras, that sort of detective look, although others were not. There were some dressed more like, um, you know, like, street people or, or people, you know, lower in the socioeconomic chain of this universe. Uh, and then a lot of the women were dressed kind of Rachel esque, you know, throwback to that maybe 40, 50s style, the little pencil skirts and the updos and things. Shoulder um, pads. Yeah. Big shoulder pads and lots of people with umbrellas, uh, neon umbrellas. And so we all knew we were in the right place. So there was one meeting place for the whole thing. You think? Um, I think there was one meeting place for the whole thing with staggered times because that gotcha. subway station was about two blocks away from the event. I don't know if they used others, but that seemed like the most logical way to get there. Um, so we're all kind of milling around and not Captain Bryant, but another person who was an actor, obviously paid by Secret Cinema, female, dressed kind of like Rachel, came up and said, are you guys waiting to meet with Captain Bryant? Yes, follow me. So we walk out of the subway station, a couple blocks, and we get to this huge fenced-in 
sort of industrial looking area. It's ma massive. And I, I would describe a building from the outside as looking like a big warehouse, maybe a two story, tw you know, 20 to 25 foot tall warehouse. Um, but it's probably more accurately a soundstage. Thinking about the way the interior of the building was set up, it may be used for you know TV or movie production that they do in London, uh, which again makes sense because they're building sets and these sets are in place for many weeks because they run this you know every week three or four times a week from late February through July. Um, it's supposed to end in June and they actually added another four weeks, I believe, because the the response was so overwhelming. So we get to this big fenced in area with this big warehouse in the back. It has a huge sign that says world terminus, which is where we're supposed to be going for our off world transport. And there's a gate and there's a line of people in line to get into the gate. So we get in line dutifully and you can see there's a mix of characters based on the way they're dressed. And that uh, another woman dressed kind of Rachel-esque comes out of the gate and starts walking up and down saying, who are the LAPD detectives in the line? And so, you know, I, I actually, I made a stupid badge. I got a badge and a little ID card. And I'm like, hey, I'm LAPD. I'm with my friend here. So she actually pulled the people that were LAPD, which it turns out if you bought the most expensive ticket, you were assigned some sort of LAPD, either detective, undercover detective, something with the LAPD was your persona. Okay. The other two tiers I think the middle tier were replicants or other types of characters. And then the bottom tier were people like living in the street, sort of the dispossessed. Underbelly, the <laughs> and as she identified who in line were detectives, she pulled us out of the line and started. I've heard you guys drop F-bombs. It's okay if I drop an F-bomb. Oh, yeah. Feel free. So she pulls us out of the line. She goes, all right, all you fucking maggots, get the fuck out of the way. This is the LAPD coming through. And they basically just pushed us to the front of the line in front of everybody, which is, I guess, part of the VIP treatment. And they're like, don't even look at us, you maggots. You're not worthy. This is the fucking LAPD. And they just like escort us in mass past everybody right into this little holding area where, you know, check your pockets, quick little security through a scanner and, uh, and then you're 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 met with uh, you're met by a liaison who says, "Oh, welcome to the LAPD. We're glad you're here at World Terminus." And they start handing you a couple things. They gave us this big envelope says LAPD evidence. Inside the envelope were a couple of items like this, which is really cool. A catalog for Hassan's exotic animals with wow. all sorts of. It's got really cool pages of all the different animals you can buy, and um, and then inside was also a black plastic bag with a really strong adhesive seal. And they made us put all of our phones and cameras and seal them. We could keep them on our person, but we could not take them out. So from that point forward, there were no more photographs. And they gave us our first assignment, which was we're going to pretend to arrest you. We're going to pretend that you guys are crooked cops and we're going to put you in this holding cell, which was still outside, but you could see to the, to the side, there was just this really tall chain link fence with a bunch of riffraff back there. So they put, we were in a group of like five, they put us in there with them and they said, you need to just find out information. Something's going on. They've got a leader who's planning something. And that was sort of the, the beginning of our journey. I'm assuming the other people that came in that were not LAPD had different, because they said there were basically three different branching journeys. 
Um, and so they had different experiences. So we're in here with the riffraff and they immediately started questioning us. The actors were, were great all night long. And they started questioning us saying, why are you guys in here? Why are you dressed like that? You know, you don't, you don't belong here. You're a cop. And I'm like, well, I'm not a cop. So I immediately came up with a backstory that I stuck with. I said, well, I'm not a cop, but it probably was a cop that I killed when I stole these clothes. Like, Oh, we like that. You're resourceful. Well, come with us. We're going to break out of here. And they, you know, within a few minutes, we start this big commotion and the cops come rushing in. And as they come rushing in, they escorted us through like this break in the fence and we're running, I mean, literally running through these makeshift tunnels. And the next thing you know, we emerge and we're inside the soundstage. And we emerge in an area that looks like a back alley with lots of graffiti. It's dark. And there's a guy, sort of messianic kind of prophet guy standing there talking to a bunch of the street people. And we get escorted in. He says, we got these new recruits boss or whatever they said, you know, that they're going to they're gonna help us with the blackout. And that's when we first heard about the blackout. And there's the guy's kind of talking to us. And he looks, and I don't know, I guess, again, because I went over the top, he looked at me and he goes, you don't look like you belong here. Although he probably would have just picked anybody who was dressed kind of like a cop. And he started kind of coming at me. And as he comes up to me and starts saying, you know what, I think you are a cop and, you know, you don't belong here. We're going to have to get you know, it's literally as all of a sudden I'm like, things are going to go down. The real cops show up and say, all right, everybody, this is a raid. This is the LAPD. And they take us and they kind of rescue us. And they say, OK, we're going to the LAPD station. Sorry, you got stuck in this little side journey, but it's time to meet Captain Bryant. Did you find anything out? We need to know what information. And so. It was kind of a way for us to learn that the street people are planning this blackout. Whoever feels dispossessed from the corporate world and the upper echelons who are leaving for the off-world colonies are planning the blackout. It was incredible. And it was raining the whole time that you're in China. Inside. Inside. Wow. They had put down these false floors a few inches above the real floor that were just like metal grates. And there were spring, you couldn't see the sprinklers, they were just gone in the darkness, but there was, I guess, a network of sprinklers over the entirety of Chinatown, and it rained the entire, you know, five, six hours that we were there. It never stopped. That is quite the commitment, because dealing with all that water and the electronics, that's a big deal. It was incredible. And so we're like walking, and I let me get my umbrella, and you know, and, and we walk through Chinatown, and then we get to these stairs, and we go up, and they've created a second layer of locations up one story all built on like scaffolding almost with multiple ways to get up there by stairs that kind of ring the perimeter of Chinatown. So we go up these stairs and we walk into the LAPD headquarters and the first room we walk in is kind of like when Deckard first goes to see Bryant, you see like a bunch of desks and ceiling fans spinning slowly and it's really like dusty and smoky kind of looked like that. It was like four old school wooden desks kind of like the duty desk in the back. And we walked through this room and then into Bryant's office. And there was an actor who was the spitting image of Bryant, of M. M. Emmett Walsh, I guess is the actor. Yeah. If you recall in 2019, he's wearing a shirt that has these like two or three little weird flaps that go off the, the shoulder onto the sleeve and button down. And if you next time you see it, you'll notice it they recreated the shirt to that level of detail. He was dressed just like him, same kind of office. And they ushered our little group of like five people in there. 
he welcomed us. Welcome to the LAPD, new recruits. You know, as you've heard, we've got something going on with, you know, this uprising. We're hearing about this blackout, but we don't know. We need you to help us figure this out. And then he takes out, he counts, and he takes out five shot glasses and pours five shots of Johnny Walker, the real deal right. for all of us, and hands us each a shot. He's like, all right, and we take a shot. It's the real deal. It's Johnny Walker, just like in the movie. And uh, a woman who I guess is another cop says, okay, you're, you know, thank you, Captain Brian. I'm going to escort them to the officer's lounge. And so we go through a different door and there's a bar, a real bar where you can actually use your coupons or buy drinks. They actually had like four different bars and restaurants set up in the space. And we get into the bar and there's Deckard. They called it the officer's club. And we found out later that only people at our tier level, they gave you like little wristbands. I can't find the wristband, but different colored wristbands. If you were an LAPD cop, you could go into the officer's club. So we walk in there and there's Deckard, an actor, sort of same age as Harrison Ford would have been in 82, same hairstyle. I wouldn't say it was a spitting image, but I mean, he was wearing the same kind of blocky graphical thin tie and the shirt and the, it was exact. And he's just standing there having a drink and he looks up and he's like, oh, hey, are you the new recruits? And he's talking to us individually and he sends us off on little individual missions. And so he sent my friend and I off down to Chinatown to meet with uh, these two women who own an electronic shop. And it just started from there. We started getting information about the blackout. We went undercover. We had to lie. We had to improvise. The women sent us back to the police headquarters um, to try, we, we kind of sold ourselves as sort of double agents. And she goes, well, if you can help us, why don't you go back and get some information for us? When we went back up there, we ended up being directed to Taffy Lewis's bar, the snake pit, and didn't know where it was. We just had to kind of find it. And it turned out that even though Chinatown was easy to see and that second layer where the LAPD offices were, there were little dark alleys and things hidden. And so we had to kind of wander around and ask directions and we found the snake pit. That's incredible. I had to use the currency to bribe my way in. There was a bouncer at the door. He's like, you can't get in here. I'm, I don't, I don't want you in here. Uh, and then he let somebody else and he goes, what, what do you got for me? And he showed him a photograph and I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. And I pulled out and I said, I've got currency for you. And I showed him one of the unicorn ones. And he's like, Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> Your efforts so we, paid off. Yeah. Oh yeah. Some people, chose not to kind of get deep into the story and follow the, they just said, yeah, you know what? We're here. I'm going to sit at the bar and just drink and wait for the movie. Well, you know, so I would say probably maybe there was like a third who were just eating and drinking and hanging out and enjoying the, the ambiance. There was maybe a third that were going through the motions of it. And then there was probably the third where I fell into that were a little too, <laughs> maybe a little too serious. And, and each run through was total of how many people not including the actors just the, the participants if i had to guess yeah just your best uh, guess somewhere between three and five hundred people oh wow huge and then a, a couple hundred actors at least i'd imagine yeah um there were lots of sort of the main actors and then there were a lot of character actors in the background so yeah i mean uh, probably close to a hundred actors i think i sent you the link they they ended up having seventy thousand total um uh, patrons, comes patrons. Um, wow. which is incredible. It was the most successful one they've ever done. Yeah. Supposedly. I mean, uh, I can only imagine it. It certainly lends itself well to that world. 
Yeah, it sounds like they really hired some exceptional actors. Um, and, I mean, obviously that made the whole experience. Uh, I will tell you, Taffy Lewis, Dead Ringer, even though the voice was a little off. Bryant, Dead Ringer. Pris, Dead Ringer. Rachel, Dead Ringer. De- Record, Deckard, really close with Dead Ringer. Here you are. Monsieur, Admiral Kovic in Engambite. He's saying you under arrest, Mr. Decker. Got the wrong guy, pal. Lofa, Negojma. Devaja play, Kaysan. He say you brave runner. Tell him I'm eating. Captain Brian Toka. Ennio Mayo. Brian, huh? It was like two and a half hours of this immersive scavenger hunt slash experiential play acting thing. And it was, I don't do it justice with the description because there are several multiple storylines that we got involved in. Um, we just met all sorts of people that were there for the event, but also the actors. The sets were just incredible. It, it, it felt like you had just lost yourself in that world for those two and a half hours. Um, and when you think about all of the pre information that they sent you know this is who you are this is your persona these are the in a way it's almost analogous to implants to those memories that were being provided for us it made the experience that much more real because you showed up with a preconceived notion of who am i you know what do i do what's my name what's my job what's my mission here you know how do i dress they had, and maybe they didn't recognize that they were doing this because they probably do it for every secret cinema event. But by creating those characters and those personas ahead of time, they basically created memory implants for us in a way. Right, right. So we get there, and you know, for those of us who were totally into it, it it was like being completely immersed in that movie that we all love so much, in that world, in that universe. Um, and I, I give them a lot of credit. It was done so well. The quality of the sets, the acting, even the food was good. We went to the noodle bar. My friend and I said, we got to get a bowl of noodles um, from the noodle bar. And we had our drinks and our shot of Johnny Walker and, you know, met Rachel and Taffy Lewis. And it was just, it was incredible. Um, And then, you know, you get escorted into the theater and they had sort of theater seating set up, two huge full-size cinema screens and scaffolding all around. And in front of one of the screens, they had a Tesla made up with like police livery and lights just sitting there. And we sit down in our seats. Oh, the other good thing about the top tier tickets is you had assigned seats and they actually had table service. So if you wanted to order food or a drink while you were sitting during the movie, they would come and take your order. So you didn't have to leave the theater. So as the movie is playing, the same actors who were in the experience before acted alongside certain key scenes in the movie on the scaffolding in front of the screen, but not in a distracting Rocky horror picture show kind of way in a way that accentuated the action on the screen. It was subtle, but very noticeable and visible. It's like they weren't hiding or doing they were right in front of your face, but it didn't detract from the movie. It was amazing. So and it like, was, did they have lines or was it silent? They were silent. Oh. But in some scenes, they would mouth the words that their character was saying on the screen. 
Sometimes it was just for ambiance. So if there was ever a scene on the screen where a spinner had the police lights flashing, the lights on the Tesla would flash. In the uh, one of the scenes where, uh, you know, it's just a street scene in Los Angeles where the people go riding by on the bicycles. A group of people went riding by on bicycles in front of the screens. So they just, again, just added to sort of the overall ambiance of the film. Like a 3D movie on steroids almost. Pretty much. Pretty much. And all of the climactic scenes were acted out by the actors climbing up and down the scaffolding. You know, when when Deckard shoots Pris, Deckard's all the way on one side of the theater. You've got the two movie screens. And the screens are just showing the exact same thing. It's just it was such a big theater. So many – they they – put up two screens. Yeah, Deckard all the way on one side, Pris all the way on the other with a spotlight on each one. And as he shoots her in the movie in the same direction as it happens on the screen, it's happening in real life in front of you. And the actress that plays Pris is, you know, on the ground, you know, like the spider thing that she does when she's riding, riding yeah. as she's diving, as she's dying. And it was just, it was so well done. The Terrell comes out at the end when Roy and JF Sebastian show up in his bedchamber and he's wearing that big, weird white robe, and he's there talking, and it's just incredible. That sounds it, amazing. It was, it was so good. We walked out of there, and I looked at my friend, and I'm like, I would do it again tomorrow night. If we could buy tickets for tomorrow night, oh, yeah. stay an extra day, and just do it again. Oh, yeah, you're making me jealous now. And I'm not sure, again, we'll, I'm sure some of this will be secret, but we'll we'll ask the creator um, – I don't, and then they haven't been around that long, so I don't know if they plan on recreating, especially the more successful movies, because um, it obviously takes a lot of planning and stuff. But um, yeah, if they ever do Blade Runner again, I will put some effort into going. Um, There's it, a good shot that it'll happen in LA, you know what I mean? So I might see yeah. you there if they do it again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they've done some outside of London. They, you know, most of them have been in London, but they've done a few where the movie has some relevance to a different location. So they've either done it simultaneously in London and another location or in another location. And I think the first few years, from what I understand from just the reading and the research I've done, they, they kind of struggled a little bit trying to build an audience and build understanding and people didn't get it. Why am I going to pay $50, $60 to go see a movie that's 10 years old because you're going to put it in a secret location. And they didn't realize the immersive experience that's coupled with that screening of the movie. And they've done a better job over the years with the acting in the sets. Sure. Um, from again, from the research I've done, cause this is the first one I went to, but zero regrets. Um, and like I said, I would have done it again. It, it was, it was incredible. It was so well done. Thanks for coming on. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do the interview. Uh, it's been really insightful and yeah, it just made me really jealous that I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, um, we just have to hope that they do, you know, either this one again, or maybe they decide to do 2049. Um, it, maybe because it was so successful, they've, they realize that maybe there's a reason to revisit the Blade Runner fandom from a business perspective. I, odds are good. It seems they're in our favor that they either redo this, adding some elements of 2049 or they do 2049. And the chances that they'll do at least one of them in LA just makes sense. You know what I mean? Both movies are set there. So, um, you know, I get, I get the London aspect as well, of course, but yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, when you look at a couple of things that are, happening in in entertainment in general like uh, so disney announced a year or so ago that they're building that 
completely immersive Star Wars themed hotel on their Florida property where when you book a room at that hotel, they assign you a persona, they rent you or they loan you a uniform or a costume based on your persona. And then you check in and the entire hotel is meant to feel like you're on some sort of interstellar, you know, starship, no windows, the windows will be LCD screens. So when you open your blinds, it looks like, you know, stars and planets going by or I think we're getting to a point where these types of interactive experiences are going to become more commonplace. And, you know, with the slowly growing world of VR and soon MR and AR, you know, becoming viable platforms for things like gaming and, and, and content consumption, I, I think they've hit on something. I think people, especially the fans of certain movies really want that, type of immersive interactive experience that you can't just get watching the movie. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, it makes me think of the often talked about way that Ridley makes movies where he built, he does so much with practical sets. And of course, uh, you know, Villeneuve and Christopher Nolan, all these really great directors, uh, Kubrick spent so much time doing things practically as much as possible this is kind of a parallel to that, meaning virtual reality, which, you know, I haven't actually played any of the VR games, but, you know, even just seeing screenshots, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of cool, but it's definitely years away from when it's going to be fully immersive and you're just never going to be able to duplicate real life. So, you know, the more yeah. you can duplicate these things in a practical reality with actors and props and sets, I mean, they put rain in there, you know, like you can't yeah. duplicate that in a game. So um, there's definitely something to it and something there. So, uh, you know, and I also find that it seems to be um, – obviously you were super into it and there's different levels of people just wanted to go hang out at the bar and sit, but you know, not everyone goes to comic con or is comfortable doing some random cosplay on their own. And you know what I mean? But this is kind of like you get some guidance and then you're allowed to dive into it as deep or as shallow as you want. And so I think it's, uh, it's a little more accessible to different spectrums and different levels of, of nerdiness, basically, you know, how much you want Absolutely. to be and, and you make a great parallel between like cosplay and Comic-Con because I've never done that. I mentioned my brother, you know, he dresses up fully like a stormtrooper. He loves that stuff. I've never done cosplay. Right. Yeah, I'm I with you. Comic-Con because I live here, mm -hmm. um, but not dressed up. You know, I'll wear a T-shirt with a logo or something on it. But this was very accessible because it was maybe a step more than doing a Halloween costume, which lots of people like, you know. Um but themed around something that you're really passionate about. And they give you a chance for just these few hours to go as deep or as shallow as you want, as you mentioned. So, yeah, I think there is some they, – they've hit on some sort of magical formula. They're doing currently – if you've seen, they're doing the Romeo and Juliet with mm -hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio, the one that was kind of set in a modern-day kind of gang war. Right. Um, and that one seems to be doing pretty well. They've they created a bunch of tattoos like the – the Capulets and the Montagues. And so they people on Instagram showing their tattoos and stuff. So people are getting That's into great. that. And there's a rumor that next year they may do who framed Roger rabbit. Whoa, that would be cool. Would be very cool. Not, it's not a movie that I care about. Like I care about blade runner, but thinking of the visuals, if they could recreate Los Angeles, 2019, 2022, whatever they, they were aiming for, if they can recreate Toontown to that level of fidelity and have the actors and the costumes, you know, recreate some of those, you know, the, the crazy tune characters probably be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. With the additional challenge of 
how do you get an actor to play a cartoon in real life? You know, that'll be an interesting um, props and makeup. Man, that, I, I imagine they'll have like 10,000 redheads audition for Jessica Rabbit roles. But <laughs> yeah, that's that's super interesting. And what a challenge, I think, from a production perspective, because um, it's different from filmmaking and more interactive and more... Um, you know, things can go wrong or go in directions that you hadn't planned, and it, it requires a lot of good professionals to be able, like we said, improvise and, and, and adapt and, and react. Um, yeah, really cool. Thanks again for coming on the show. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.